This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray. CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Wesley Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, and I'm in today for my good friend Jeremy Schwartz. We've got an excellent show lined up. Before we get to that, I'd like to welcome the other host of Behind the Markets, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. Professor, lots of econ data, Facebook's <laughs> yeah. dying. Tell us what your thoughts are. It's interesting. And right as we're talking, we're seeing a little sell-off here. You know, Facebook in the big drop yesterday opened up. And now it's down more than 1.5%. And tech is selling off, even despite Amazon is like barely up right now. After a good uh, thing. Now, the question is, is this a rotation? And we've talked about this before. There have been a few other times the last six months where we've seen uh, the NASDAQ, the tech stocks, sell up, but they bounce back. Um, you know, will they always do so? Well, there are a lot of moment. we've got to understand, a lot of momentum players that are in this market that ride the trend, and as soon as that trend is broken, they jump off. So we might be seeing some of that now. It's too early for me to say that the, the major trend of tech is going to shift, um, because, you know, actually the oils are not doing well. ExxonMobil is down over 3%. They have not reported good even despite firm oil price. So it's not necessarily going to be a shift yet, but, but uh, we, we do see that. Uh, let's talk about the, you know, the two other developments. I mean, besides, uh, you know, Facebook and a potential rotation, uh, the GDP number, um, the GDP number was, was good. Um, actually, I thought it would come in a little higher, but the reason it came in only at 4.1% was actually a drop in inventories, and that is bodes well for next quarter. In fact, the forecasters I look at, uh, some of them have now bounced uh, their third quarter estimate up from the high twos to the low threes um, on the basis of uh, inventory build next quarter. So. Are we in a 3% uh, growth path? Um, we might be. It can't be dismissed. It's still a little early. Um, you know, Trump afterwards gave an announcement that it was a little confusing the way he said it about $10 trillion. It really meant over 10 years. If we get 3% growth instead of 2% growth, we will have that much over 10 years. Uh, he kind of said it much later. At first, it was a little confusing. Um, uh, we did, by the way, cross a milestone of having a, a 20 trillion dollar economy nominal gdp uh this quarter so it's a nice round number that we just uh surpassed so it was a good report it was pretty much anticipated um uh, uh they also revised the past pretty much as anticipated taking out some of the seasonal data that has depressed first quarter uh numbers and that may not happen in the future as a result um uh, and the, the numbers were good. Um, I was also encouraged by um, the, the uh, negotiations with Juncker on the uh, European 
union. Um, uh, you know, he's been so belligerent, Trump, on, on trade. This is the first time that he came out with an announcement. And even though it's modest, we're working together. It was a very cooperative announcement. Um, and that's the first time that's happened. So in a way, the market jumped on that. Uh, it, and of course, except for Facebook, actually was up again strongly yesterday, you know, as a result of, hey, you know what, you know, Trump has the capability of of what's let's of course everyone wants to see that happening with China that's the tougher nut certainly than the European Union but I think it was encouraging um, you know the, the the tariffs with the EU are really silly and and they should be negotiated away and we'll see whether that uh, uh, that happens or not um, but uh, and earnings are coming in uh, again and we're seeing up and down I mean that's um, obviously Facebook was a big disappointment first decline in you know quarter and quarter users um again i say for me it's too early to say is that a is that a is this a turn in the tech sector i would have this morning i would have said no what i think now at noon looks like there's, there's a little bit more selling uh, coming into that um again not associated with any more negative news but maybe just uh a, a, re, a reassessment Gotcha. Professor, I, I got to ask you for one prediction before we let you go here. I know sure. Amazon and Apple were, you know, teetering with the first trillion dollar company. Yeah. You got a you got a call on who's going to make it first? Oh, wow. Um I you know, I, I you know, I think it's got to be Amazon. I mean, Amazon came out with some more great numbers. Um uh Apple I think is still a little bit under the cloud of what's going to happen in China that will keep its valuation more stable. So um, uh, I, if I had to make a call, I'd say Amazon, but uh, I warn readers, don't bet your life on it. <laughs> gotcha. Thanks, Professor. I'm, I'm with you on that call. I, I, I can vouch for that one. Uh, okay. Appreciate your thoughts, and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Excellent. Uh, so transitioning back here to the studio, and just a fair warning everyone out there we have three phds in the studio today uh my job is to hopefully make this uh, understandable for everyone uh and we got two guests the first one is jack vogel who actually works with me at alpha architect he's the uh smarter half of the equation um he's our cio and then more importantly even more so even than jack because we have lee chin ren who is a portfolio manager at the vanguard quantitative equity group where she's in charge of managing the factor funds, and she is a expert on factor strategies. And so what we're going to do is we have this great opportunity to kind of focus on factor investing with one of the world's greatest experts, who also has a very interesting background that actually starts in a small village in China. Uh, but before we get there, just want to first thank the guests for uh, joining today. Thanks. Thanks, Wayne. So, uh, Lee Chen, a uh, little off topic, but there's a, a bunch of uh, chit-chat on Twitter these days, specific to a gentleman named Josh Brown, who I know you don't really know about, but on Twitter he's a big deal. Um, and we have this huge debate about whether it is finance or finance. And do you have any opinions as a professional in the field of what the appropriate <laughs> way to pronounce it is? Well, this is America, so it must be finance. Is he French? 
I don't know, but you know what? We'll uh, we'll have to investigate his background. We'll investigate his background, <laughs> and I'll ask him if he's uh, if he's French. Uh, I think he'll be offended by that. We'll comment. find out. <laughs> yeah, I do appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so Lee Chen, so so let's ta- let's talk about your story. Like I know you you start off in a village, living in essentially like you know a little hut with no running water, and now you're running Vanguard's factor funds. That's pretty amazing. You mind just rolling back and giving us the history? Uh, thank you, thank you for inviting me. Um, yes, I uh, grew up in a little village um, in Zhejiang Province. People know about Zhejiang because um, Alibaba was uh, headquartered in in that province. Mm-hmm. Um, the village I grew up with uh, literally has no plumbing. Uh, on the other hand, it was uh, if you have to picture, it's almost like the movie or um, well, the TV series, The Little House on the Prairie but in 1970s China. So with way more people and slight less land. Mm-hmm. So it's very similar that way. Um, I came from a huge family. I have 21 first cousins. Um, it, it gives me opportunity to see and understand human nature a lot. I saw, you know, human behaviors up and close because we all live within the same town. Um, it kind of keeps me grounded, uh, not susceptible to high idealisms that's, you know, not grounded in human nature. Like my dad sometimes says that, you know, communism, you know, it cannot work um, uh, because it just it doesn't work, you know, the way people behave. So um, when when I was in there, I remember um, it's a village where there's no access to finance or firefighters. So before my dad. Um, got married, my there was a fire that started from the kitchen and then just burned the whole house of my grandfather and all the money he stored in the green bins were gone. So as you can see that um, access to financial products and firefighters are very important. We kind of take these things for granted. Um, when I first came to the, I, I feel like from you know my own life story, the way I think about it is almost like active management. Um, is it luck or is it skill? I tend to think that most of the credit of life is because of luck. I was just lucky that you know my parents really loved me and I was able to go to Peking University in China and come to U.S., which is really, the I think, the best country that's very friendly to outsiders compared to all the other places I've visited. So I think I was just lucky. Uh, when I first came to the U.S., I never used the microwave and never heard about Wall Street Journal. So these are things I bought right away as soon as I came. And, you know, I bought um, lots of my favorite CDs, Whitney Houston, Awful Man, all this, Elvis Presley, you know, those days. It kind of gave my age away because CDs were still prevalent those mm-hmm. years. So in I think in the end, you know, uh, most of it is I was just lucky. Of course, uh, I tried to focus on the things I could change, right? So I I think love and education op- opportunities, hard work and some degree of idealism. Like, you know, people think of U.S. as a beacon in the hill. You know, I think those things makes, you know, makes me who I am today. Yeah, I mean, I love your story. You're literally living the American dream. It's uh, incredible and awesome. Um, what's even more incredible and awesome is, is you, you went from that background, made it all the way to the States, you know, fighting, hooking and jabbing, and then you end up at the pinnacle of education and, and you're a PhD student at the University of Chicago 
it tell us about that experience and how that shaped you going forward. Um, thank you. Um, I I want to take this opportunity to thank my advisor, Eric Hurst. I know that he's probably, you know, not as happy that I didn't go into academic. As you know, uh, your PhD advisors usually like you to go into academic work. Um, I he's just one of the nicest person, and I don't think I could have finished the PhD without him. I really, really. Um, was lucky to uh, get him as advisor, and I was lucky to meet some other nice professors like Steve Levitt and Cohen Charles. They're just nice in so many ways that you know makes it very helpful in the in the environment that you also you know went through. It is a very tough environment uh, for an international student, particularly. Um, I remember you are expected to be like bright and hit the ground running on research right away, and uh, there's not a you know, mentor student structure there. So no one is really checking on you whether you're okay or not. So for some time, I felt like you either swing or drown, like you felt a huge pressure. Um, but I was just lucky that um, I, when I was at University of Chicago, uh, through my pure luck, um, a friend, uh, Mrs. Carol McQueen, her husband, Dave, happened to also move to Chicago uh, as a faculty in the computer science department. So I got a lot of emotional and like material support from them as well. And also, um, University of Chicago's Booth School has international campuses in, used to be in Barcelona and then later moved to London and Asian campus in Singapore, the executive MBA program. So I was able to go as a teaching assistant to these places and travel and learn learn the cultures in different places. So it was really, I felt very lucky to go to this university. And before I, um, before I went to the university, I already heard, you know, many good things about the university in terms of the classics training in common core curriculum or the empirical evidence driving the thinking, not the other way around. And on the power of market, you know, Milton Freeman, mm -hmm. he was in China when, when he was, uh, he did a China trip and he really, it was on the news, you know, many of us was really very in awe of his ideas of market. So I really was very, um, very happy that I went to the university. I wish I could do more for the university, but still like I appreciate what I learned um, the, all these things even after I left. Well, unfortunately, Vanguard is not a hedge fund, so it may, <laughs> may take a while to you can uh, support them uh, one of these days. Yeah, and so, you know, speaking, you talked about what you learned. Can you discuss with us kind of what your dissertation was about and uh, how has that prepared you for what you're doing now in research world? Um, my dissertation is actually not that finance-related. Um, my dissertation was on trying to find empirical evidence on how American husband and wives actually came from uh, seeing wealthy backgrounds, like how how correlated between the wealth of you and your wife. Mm -hmm. um, um, the, the thing is, you know, there's lots of literature which shows that, you know, people go to the same kind of schools, people got similar incomes, but wealth is a little bit touchy issue in the sense in the U.S., people try to think of U.S. as a country where, you know, people can pull up your straps and, you know, get into mm -hmm. a higher class. So it was an empirical study. And what I found was that um, actually, you know, in the U.S., it's still pretty much a class society that the, you know, the wealth sorting of husbands and wives is actually pretty high. Mm -hmm. um, I think correlation is close to 0.4. Depends on, uh, you know, how... So how rich you, people marry rich, rich people, people, basically. Yeah, and, and a lot of... I, I will be honest with you. A lot of people think 
instantly says, oh, that's bad. And I, I'm actually going to say a little bit that it's not necessarily a bad thing, particularly, you know, with my background from China, that I know my parents lived through Cultural Revolution, where, you know, the the society was, you know, not stable, you know, the intellectuals and what kind of don't they, they they were prosecuted and you know people the society was not stable so in the society where you know wealth correlation is high between husband and wife it's not necessarily bad or, or bad because in a good stable society you have you're able to get the good traditions and cultures um to pass so that's that's what i i, I think the thing i learned is that uh, in chicago you know, you want to do most thorough job in empirical studies. You try to present the results. You you don't try to you know form opinions uh, mm-hmm. on there. Emphasize on the opinions. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. And just a reminder to the listeners: uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio Sirius XM one thirty two. Channels change. And I'm Wes Grace, and in for Jeremy Schwartz. And I'm here in the studio with Jack Vogel of Alpha Architect and Lee Chen Ren, Portfolio Manager of Vanguard's Factor Funds. Yes. So, Legion, can you tell us about your journey to Vanguard and, you know, kind of what you did, how you got there, and now what you're doing with, you know, a higher profile role as the Factor Fund Portfolio Manager? So, uh, I joined Vanguard about uh, 11 years ago. Um, I uh, joined Vanguard's investment strategy group, uh, mainly working on economic forecasting and investor behavior and asset allocation funds like targeted funds, managed payout Mm -hmm. funds. Um, and then after three and a half years, I joined the quantitative equity group to be more focused on equity research. We're uh, working on industry rotation and factor strategies. Um, I want to you know, talk a little bit about quantitative equity group because when people think about Vanguard, it's all index. The truth is that um, half of the Vanguard assets is actually inactive. And the uh, quantitative equity group, which I'll refer to as the QEG, it actually has a long history. It started um, managing funds starting from 1991. And right now it manages about $40 billion, all in quantitative uh, approaches. So Not it's very bad. team-based. Uh, and uh, we have close to seven PhDs, um, 16 CFA designated uh, designations. So, you know, it's it's kind of a little gen, but not as well known outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't, you know, forget about the the active side of Vanguard and how much money that they manage. Yeah, it's which just, is quite astounding. It's a monster firm. So I got to ask the question. I mean, as you know, like just the number of of women as portfolio managers is pretty much zero. And then when you narrow it down to the number of female quantitative portfolio managers. I think you might be one of the the only ones I even know of. Um, so you mind just comment on on that element or aspect of you know your field where it's just you know you're dominated by uh, very few women out there. Um, it's true. I think uh, not only in just in portfolio management, just just not many women in finance in general. Um, I'll be honest. When I try to you know do my work, researching uh, strategies, I never think of myself as a woman. I usually you know just a very team based work. I just work with whoever colleagues we we have. Um, but on the other hand, I do believe uh, that we should have equal opportunity for any for anyone regardless of gender. So I have a daughter and a son. So I don't want either of them to feel discriminated. Um, so I also think uh, the focus needs to be more on why girls don't get interested in finance at earlier age. 
Um, it is true that even at the high school and college graduate school level, there are already way less women than men in finance. Um, I am trying to observe my own daughter at first grade uh, here in um, in Malvern. Um, so what I found is that um, a lot of girls here don't just don't get enough exposure to money and finance. So once uh, my daughter was in a founding father study, what I did is that I actually taught uh, learn read the books on Alexander Hamilton to him because um, he, you know, Alexander Hamilton, mm-hmm. he was uh, like the first treasury secretary. And I, my daughter's instant question was, what does treasury secretary do? And actually it took me a while to try to <laughs> explain to a, a girl what, what is, you know, yeah. treasury secretary. So I think uh, that exposure is very much needed um, and and should start like earlier, as early mm-hmm. as possible. I don't believe straight quota, I'll be honest with you. Um, my undergraduate is actually computer programming. And uh, computer programming used to have more females than males. N- you know, people didn't realize that. In the 1960s, there are more coders who are women. Mm-hmm. And now it's become more male-dominated. Um, and journalism used to be dominated by males, but now it has more female dominant. So there are more dynamics of work, work for not seeing more women in finance. I really think... What needed is to have the environment where you get the equal amount of opportunities, which I still there's a long way to go for pretty much all the companies here. Mm. Um, and I'm trained as an economist, so as an economist, particularly as a Chicago economist, you have to you know remember that with limited time you cannot have it all. So there are trade offs. So I um, I love my work, and you know it provides for my family, but. On the other hand, uh, this is one sentence I love to t- tell people is that my work is never going to call me mommy. My kids are going to call me mommy, right? Yeah. So, you know, you just have to balance. I found that being a working mother is actually way more difficult than I originally thought. So I'm also myself is trying to learning how to balance. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what they say, working two full-time jobs isn't easy. Uh, <laughs> so so that, that's totally reasonable that uh, you find that challenging because uh, – just being a mom alone seems, you know, that's hardcore. That's a 160-hour-a-week job. So, yeah, I know. Uh, good on you. Um, so, so let's transition here. We'll we'll move uh, to the more esoteric stuff here, but try to bring it up to the forefront so people can understand. Let's move to factor investing. Like, I mean, this is your expertise. This is what you do. You, you manage these for one of the largest asset managers in the world. Um I guess the first question is, you know, there's a lot of research out there across all sciences that are basically questioning, like, are these results we found in the past, are they even replicable? Is this all data mining? What is your overall opinion on this sort of research and its application in finance specifically? Um, first, I want to emphasize that even the factor research within our group is more team-based, so I'm not the only one. It was really several people working on this together. Um, I think the the ideal factor is really a second generation way of looking at investment. So in the early years, you look at investments through the style boxes, um, you know, value momentum, small, large, large, mid, uh, uh, small. But factors is a I think factors is a better way because it's a more complex and more. It it it, it tells more the complexity of the portfolio more than the old old way. Mm-hmm. And in terms of um, factor research, I know there are like 500 or how many character stock characteristics which people are calling as factors. Um, I try to think that, uh, you know, we launch these uh, factor funds through really thorough research. And a lot of these stock characteristics are not really factors. They're only a few factors. Uh, um, 
And that's why we, we you know, we launched uh, Minvo Value Momentum, Liquidity Quality, and the Multi-Factor um, because, you know, through research, we believe there are both um, economic reasons for these factors to deliver long-term uh, active performance and as well as uh, human behavior stories. So mm-hmm. I do believe there, you know, there are more, more, more in these uh, details. It. Now, so you have all these factors, and I know Vanguard's got their choice of factors. You know, if I had to put you on the spot and you have to rank order these factors, who, who, who's your top? Are you, a, are you a value fan, a liquidity fan? What's what's your preference, assuming you had to have one? Um, so do I play favorites among my children? No. So it's hard for me, but do I find that sometimes my daughter needs a little bit more hugging? And yes. So right now, if you put the gun on my head, I will say um, quality and liquidity. Uh, these are the two uh, factor ETFs that um, um, they are not as familiar as value and momentum. Um, they are not widely available from other shops. I believe liquidity ETF, not many shops uh, offer uh, liquidity ETF. Yet both of them has a pretty good factor story. So, you know, we believe that relatively illiquid stocks uh, outperform more liquid and glamorous stocks. Um, there's research that believes that size premium, as we generally know it, is actually the mainly liquidity premium. Um, if you are able to control transaction transaction costs, sorry. So, and quality factor is the same. Um, I believe when we believe that profitable companies that make money through organic growth, not through purely investment, uh, will outperform in the long run. Um, actually, in the last ten years, I believe quality has done better than value and momentum. Yeah. So, so on that liquidity thing, there you know, there's new research out there from AQR talking about you know the size effect might be bunk. Um, it, w- what's your comment on that specifically? How it relates to liquidity? I actually uh, agree uh, very much with that paper. That um, I don't believe size as itself is a premium. It's just one easy way, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to 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 look at your portfolio. I think uh, liquidity is the factor that's driving. The size. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, through my own research, um, we found that uh, liquidity, even within a size bucket, there's still some liquidity premium. So mm-hmm. I think it's, it's uh, you know, it's more than just pure size. And uh, the the only thing I I will take a little bit different stance from that paper is that, um, uh, you know, AQR mentions that transaction cost is very hard to control for for these illiquid stocks, relatively illiquid stocks. And I agree. And that's why um, when when I actually manage the portfolio, we are very, very much conscious of transaction costs. Mm-hmm. Makes uh, sense. Nice. So, you know, turning back just to factors in general, right, it's a question we get a lot, a lot of people like to talk about. And the, and the question is, you know, why will factors continue to work you know, if everyone knows about them, like these are open secrets. So, you know, what's kind of your take on why these could potentially work in the future, even though we all know about them? Yeah, I when we launch these factor products, we definitely have these uh, consider like uh, concerns that in mind. Um, I think the simple answer is that you need to know why these factors will work. And like I mentioned before, we believe there are two um, strands, uh, there's two threads of talking about factors. One is based on human behavior. So people tend to follow trend and buy the stocks that are in the news that has been up. So this is why, you know, momentum works. Um, and if you believe human behavior is fundamentally going to change in the future, 
then yes, these factor premiums uh, could disappear. Um, but like I said, I grew up in a little village with no plumbing, and I lived here in you know Philadelphia for the last eleven years, and I found that human nature actually does not vary that much, and also does not change that much. If you look at literature, you you know reading stories from Greek and Roman days or from seventeenth century, it, you know human nature is be agreed they all exist through human history. So I think if you believe that these human behaviors are still going to be there and um, and the factors are based on based on these uh, uh, the reason of factors have un- performance is because of this then I think factors should continue to work. So that's the um, not you know the human behavior story. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, appreciate Lee Chen. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a quick break here. So stay tuned, everyone. We're gonna continue this conversation after a short break. As a reminder, I'm Wes Gray, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM Channel 132. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Wes Gray, sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz today, and my guests today are Jack Vogel, CIO of Alpha Architect and Lee Chin Ren, a portfolio manager for the Factor Funds at Vanguard's Quantitative Equity Group. And before we dive in and continue our discussion on factors and next topic here will be portfolio construction, maybe Lee Chin, just for some of our audience members out there, let's step back a little bit and just explain high level, what is factor investing and why would Joe Blow in, in the middle of nowhere care about this discussion? Thank you. Um, So the way I think of factor investing is in contrast with index investing. So index, typical Vanguard, cap-weighted, you you buy the whole market. Factors is tilting away from the market. So you tilt your portfolio in several different ways toward a characteristics of stocks. So for example, suppose you buy a quality factor fund, then you're going to have stocks that has more quality stocks, which um, based on the definition that we use is more profitable companies that doesn't have uh, as much as uh, investment. Uh, They have more organic growth. So you're going to buy stocks with that tilt. If you buy a value value factor fund, then your portfolio is going to tilt toward um, stocks that have, you know, um, different earnings uh, to price ratio than the market. Got so so to summarize, you you have kind of index funds where you just basically buy everything in the market, and then you have factor funds where you buy certain types of stocks with different characteristics that you think might perform differently. And in, just just to to complete the loop here, um, do you mind explaining why those are both different than say stock picking or traditional type investment investing approaches? Um, I think. Uh in some way, traditional stock picking could be factor investing as well, like factor investing closet as well. So mm-hmm. people have, there's a paper which look at uh, Warren Buffett's investment and found that he has a huge uh, quality tilt in his portfolio. If you look at back, look back, you know, 30 years of his uh, holdings. So I think in the old days um, where, you know, the data and then computers are not as running fast, people are still using balance sheet information to try to tilt their portfolio in active manager. Mm-hmm. Now, the the difference now is that, you know, data becomes more uh, cheaper and also computer programming, computer computation power becomes cheaper. So you could, you know, quickly run through all the characteristics and of the stocks and mm-hmm. then build up a portfolio that has a factor tilt. Gotcha. So so in many respects, factors is kind of the new stock picking just being done with computers, essentially. Um, 
and yeah, in this day and age with machine learning, algos everywhere, even if you're a stock picker out there, it would probably make sense to at least be cognizant of these new technologies so you don't get left behind, essentially. Um, that, that's great, and uh, I really appreciate that. So, you know, an, another thing kind of related to this is, you know, Vanguard is very well known for market cap weighting indexes, i.e. buy everything, but, you know, own the big stocks even more so. Um, but factor investing, you guys do something totally different. So how do you think about that being at Vanguard? Yeah, so first, all factor funds are not cap-weighted. And uh, the reason is because we believe that that's the way that offers the best exposure to factors. So factor funds has gone through a kind of history for in the early years of style factors. So, for example, Vanguard has a Vanguard Value Fund. Um, that It's a style factor fund. It is cap-weighted with a slight uh, style tit. And then the second generation factor funds um, uh, launched by a lot of companies were using a combination of factor score and market cap weighting. Now we found that now, you know, we just go to the end that, you know, more factor funds are launched with a pure factor score weighting. And that's mm-hmm. what we, we do, what we do as well. Gotcha. And just real quick, just to recap that. So it, my understanding is so market cap, you own the bigger stocks with more weights the the style tilts it's you know kind of similar idea but these factor weights you know if something's cheaper well you want to own more of that basically right yeah. so it just goes pure factor and yeah. the weightings are based on the factors so too. use the example you know yesterday Facebook is down you know twenty three percent if you were to market cap weight your portfolio with the style tilt then Facebook could have a low value score mm-hmm. but it's gonna still have a very high percentage in the value factor fund mm-hmm. if you market cap with them. But mm-hmm. if you factor score with them, then Facebook, you know, it's not going to be uh, in, in the top, you know, as much. Yeah, have a much lower weighting because it's expensive relative to a lot of other yeah. securities. Yeah. But it's huge, so it'll have a huge weighting in an index. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the explanation. Yeah, and so just a deeper dive into, you know, portfolio construction here. How do you guys think about, like, the number of holdings in a portfolio and, you know, how frequently you need to rebalance on these factors? And does it matter which factor we're looking at? Um, so we don't have a set rebalancing schedule. Uh, we monitor the factor exposure and rebalancing when the exposure meaningfully declined. So the portfolio managers has a full discretion in terms of when to rebalancing. Um, Vanguard's always believing broad-based diversified portfolios. So we have holdings that's closer to 500 and 800 instead of 50 to 150. I think that's more suitable to our investors. Now, there another different set of investors may, you know, may have a different set of uh, considerations in terms of how many holdings in there. Um, our Minvol fund uh, generally has le- less number of holdings uh, as part of the um, portfolio construction. Okay, thanks. And you know, two other terms that people worry about, think about. One is you know tracking error from an index. Do you guys even think about that at all? And, and then what about active share um, on your funds? Yeah, so I think this is where we deviate a little bit from other uh, factor fund uh, shops that, you know, a lot of them, they keep track of uh, outside factor index. And, you know, we view factor funds as active. Like in Vanguard, mm-hmm. anything that deviates from market cap is active. So we don't have a specific target on these. Of course, you know, when we do research, we look at them, like generally how much, 
uh, would the tracking error be? But our goal is to um, offer investors with all the transparency of index-based factor funds, but with the added benefit of more targeted and consistent exposures and at a lower cost. So we don't really um, target these uh, characteristics. And, and just also, just step back, just real quick, you might explain what is tracking error in simple language? Yeah, tracking error is nothing but how different you are from the benchmark. Mm-hmm. So market cap weight is you know the benchmark usually, mm-hmm. and tracking error is how how different your portfolio is from the from the market cap weighted uh, uh, index fund. Gotcha. Yeah, and so you know, one other thing, just looking at, we've seen recently, you know, some big moves and some of the actually bigger stocks in the marketplace. We were talking about Facebook earlier. What what happens within these funds? Do you have any sector or industry constraints? Because you could probably see at times, you know, a certain style overweighting certain sectors. So where do you guys in your portfolio construction come down there? Yeah, we don't have uh, sector and industry constraints for the factor funds. Again, we believe that giving the investors the best factor exposure uh, is you know, our goal. So we didn't put in too much constraints on those. Uh, but for the Minvo, we do have um, sector constraints, mainly because for Minvo, you know, by name, it, it means minimizing the forward-looking uh, volatility. So we don't want the portfolio's return to be driven by one particular stock or one particular sector. So we have constraints on those. Great. And uh, so just a reminder, I'm Wes Gray, and you're listening to Behind the Markets. And I'm here in the studio with Jack Vogel of Alpha Architect and Lee Chen Ren, Portfolio Manager of the Factor Funds at Vanguard. Um, so Lee Chen, just moving on, we'll go to uh, some more high-level philosophical stuff here. Um, you know, now that you're, you know, a factor ninja running Vanguard high-profile gig, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand quants. Like quants are people that are smoking cigars, sitting in the back room, you know, programming and doing math equations all day. How do you think about quants? And and a lot of people would call you a quant. Is that offensive to you, or is that reality? What's what's your thoughts? No, I'm. Uh, I don't think of them as offensive. I think uh, because you know movies have, and you know people have imaginations of what quant shop is. So people usually think of quants like computers, algorithms driving all the investment decisions, and high frequency trading. Uh, but the truth is that the the type of quant I do and most people do actually um, is very much like human researched and monitored. So the computers is a tools that gets the data, gets the signal, you know, generated. But day to day, the research is thoroughly and used by the people with the human control. Yeah, so I mean that makes sense. At the end of the day, someone has to build the model. Uh, Maybe in 50 years it'll be different, but right now humans are still building the models, right? Yeah. So, just random question for you: What was the first model you built? You know, when you're doing you know research, and and how did you know when to stop? Because obviously, on any model, you can always try to make it better. Uh, where do you draw the line there? So that um, was a long time ago. Um, the first, I think, equity-related model I built was the uh, industry rotation model. Um, I think it also reminds me that academic research and industry research has a slightly different approach. In academic research, you really want to drill down to the end, you know, until your advisor says it's okay. But in the industry, you know, you have timelines, you have deadlines, and you have limited resources. 
So I tried many ways, you know, bottom up industry, industry momentum, industry variation, or top down, macro, you know, variable driven.、Um, and I, at that time, at least, you know, this was like six, seven years ago.、Uh, I just found that、uh, alpha ad is not as high after you're taking into account of transaction cost, and also after you're taking into account of stock level momentum or valuation. So the model also behaves very、um, kind of.、Uh, Sporadically across different、um, time periods, without a clear story. So I think、uh, in these kind of situations,、um, I you know we decided to stop building and then put in the shell. But usually we will revisit it, you know, after a couple years because transaction cost has come down. And if you know the model, if the transaction cost can overcome, then we we likely to、um, re- re- redo the model. Lee Chen, I'll share some good news with you. Jack and I spent probably two years doing the same sort of thing and came to the same conclusion.、Uh, so、uh, <laughs> I feel much better. Yeah, we're in agreement on、uh, you know this stuff is is tough to figure out. Yeah. So so w- within you know、uh, quant and quant research folks, you know wh- whom do you admire in, in that world? Um, admire is such a big word. Um, I think the safe answer is. Cliff Asnes, I、uh, hope I pronounce his name correctly.、Uh, he has built a you know a tremendous company that turned good investment ideas into good investment products, and I think these are the hardest.、Um, you know, some some ideas could be good as investment ideas, but may not be able to come up with a good investment products、um, that's good for the investors. I think he has done it, and you know the way. The way he did it, you know, he gives you know there's credibility behind、uh, the 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 research he put up and the products he put it up. So I mean, not not only that, he happens to be a you know Chicago Bulls alumni, but、uh, I don't know him. But I think、uh, um, he he's indeed someone I, I admire、uh, tremendously. But on the personal level, I really want to say that、um, maybe because my dad was also in the army,、uh, so when I heard about West's story, I was really really.、Um, Blown away.、Um, I I've been reading your book, The Embedded.、Um, I always want to learn a little bit about the U.S. military and how you know it works.、Um, it it just you know I cannot fathom you know second year finance PhD student, you know usually considered bookworms and would join the Marine and go to Iraq and fight with people you know for for the things you believe in. And I mean I have nothing but admiration. And I think that's why.、Um, That's why you know this country is great in the sense that、um, there's something. Sometimes you know we try to be, we we have to do something which is slightly at higher level than you know just making money. Yeah, no, I mean appreciate that, and you know it's my honor, and it's awesome that someone like you live the American dream, which is not me. I didn't really do much, but a lot of people you know give their lives for this kind of stuff, so it's kind of a big deal.、Um, And I will have to give a shout out to Cliff Asnes. He's kind of our wonder boy as well. We like to always tell people we think of ourselves as the mini AQR. So、uh, I'm in、uh, I'm in agreement that that he's pretty much awesome. And you know AQR is a, a amazing asset management shop.、Um, what's interesting, actually, in, in, especially since the fact that you mention AQR in particular, is one of the things that that they haven't done that you have done and we've done is you know ETFs. 
So do you have any opinions on how ETFs may have or may or may have not changed the game for quants and active management in general? Actually, I do. I, and if you don't mind, I'd really like to drill down. Actually, in the last, just last two days alone, I've got so many uh, questions from my family and my classmates in terms of ETF. And I used to think these are pretty simple ideas. But the truth is, you know, people, we, you know, we live and breathe in it. So we take this knowledge as, um, as granted. But for people who don't use ETFs or don't know about this, they have a different way of thinking of ETF, which actually um, surprised me a little bit. So I think there needs a lot of clarifications in terms of what ETF is. Um, ETF is nothing but uh, investment product delivery vehicle. So in the old days, um, there are mutual funds. Now it's ETF. Actually, when I manage money, um, it's not that different, managing an ETF portfolio versus a mutual fund. They are just a way that can make a financial product easier to um, access for the people. So if you want to buy a Vanguard mutual fund, you need to be you know, either on the Vanguard platform or some mutual fund platform. But ETF is like a stock, so everybody can buy it and get the same exposure as a mutual fund. Um, they have been synonymous with index products. When people think of ETF, they always think of index products. I think mainly because... Um, SEC has been slow in approving active ETFs. So, you know, most of the products you see is indexed. But the truth is that recently SEC has caught up with the reality of the, of the, um, of, on the ground. So active ETFs will become more prevalent. And I think ETF as a, you know, delivery vehicle has made, um, quant and active products more accessible. So I think Cliff probably, you know, is, thinking already, but, you know, <laughs> in, sure. using ETFs. Yeah, now, and, and being at Vanguard, I mean, in many respects, you know, your firm leads the effort for change. Uh, almost, you know, they are the the 800-pound gorilla out there. What, what do you see as the next major shifts in the asset management industry? You know, what can clients and investors look forward to in the future? I think there will be a more consolidation of active management. I still believe active management uh, delivers value as long as the cost is not too high. So I think that will be the next major shift, that, you know, there will be companies that, you know, that does active management well and at the reasonable cost. They are mm-hmm. still going to, you know, be um, the leaders in this business. But if you cannot deliver active value and still charge a very high price, then, you know, you, you're going to be very tough with Vanguard and all the other, other companies getting into this space. Yeah, it, it makes sense. It's almost... You know, in it, the cheap index stuff just got free. The active 220, you know, really expensive hedge fund stuff, maybe it's not free because it requires, you know, human capital and, you know, PhDs with huge brains like yourself. But it can't be so expensive that, you know, the extra 1% in expectation you earn costs you 5% to get it. That would yeah. be not a good thing. So, I mean, Unfortunately, we agree with you because we have confirmation bias because we're <laughs> in the same business of uh, trying to do you know cheaper active stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean we agree. Yeah, and so you know, kind of just uh, another question here on a little off topic, but you know, what advice you know would you give to a millennial or someone kind of just beginning their career in, in finance? Um, I was always told that don't give advice because it always come back and bite you. <laughs> but uh, I will say that um, I think the uh, important thing is to find an in- intersection of your passion and also being able to make a living for you and your family. Um, 
I still believe that people should choose to do things that they are passionate about. Because usually, if you're passionate about something, you actually become good, and you'll be able to make a living. So I think these two are not necessary in conflict. Um, even for those who don't need to、uh, make a living,、uh, you know, don't need to work to make a living, I still recommend working. I I think、uh, you know this country is you know founded on Uh, you know, the the foundation is you know work matters.、Uh, hard work matters even more. So I think、um, through work you will learn more about society and yourself. So that will be my advice. Yeah, I mean that, that makes sense. My my dad used to always say,、uh, if you have a hobby, never make it a job because it'll become a job.、Uh, <laughs> but if you can find something you're passionate about and you can make some money and you can blend those two, you know maybe that's the maybe that's the best advice out there.、Um, So looking back, I mean, I, honestly, like, I think your background's amazing, and people could learn a lot about you know coming from nothing to go to the top of the ranks here. What, what is something that you know you know today that about investing in particular that you wish you had known ten years ago? Um, I think ten years, you know, July twenty fifth. Two thousand eight. I, you know, of course, I wish I know. You know, the market is going to come back. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be nice. We all <laughs> wish we knew. Yes,、um, but those are a little bit wishful thinking. I still think.、Um, I never. I think at that time, I still have not appreciated enough that market timing is very difficult, and there's futility in market timing. I think I got more now, but those those days, I. I mean, I I know that, but I never really drilled in my、um, in my brain. And I also think I wish I you know taken quality as a factor a little bit more seriously. Um, ten years ago, I mean, we know a little bit about a quality factor, but it was not very mainstream. Um, so I think.、Um, but now you think about it, it's pretty common sense. You know, profitable companies through organic growth. You know, so I I think these are things I wish you know in terms of investment. Yeah. Now, as far as um. In investing, particular, like there's a lot of talk about machine learning and you know newfangled techniques, you know here and there. Well, do, do you see anything in the the technology of investing or things out there on the horizon that you find interesting or or you'd like to explore personally?、Um, I think pretty much every shop is exploring already, you know,、mm. including our shop.、Uh, but the thing with machine learning is um, first, um, you know. Even the science itself needs、uh, some catch up in terms of how to and and current research has shown that it's actually very difficult to to be used in in active equity management and that's one thing and the second thing is、um, a lot of machine learning、uh, results are not very stable so I mean we are going to be put in a tough decision in terms of you know do you go with your guts says hey you know this works from numbers. But without a good story, or、mm-hmm. do you not go with it? And I think in the end,、um, there's some、um, some research which shows that machine learning.、Uh, they have you know experts in this area has tried to、um, reproject the machine learning results back into understandable factors. So you know、mm-hmm. if you see something which is output of machine learning, but you could say, hey, actually it's kind of valuey, you know.、Mm-hmm. So then that's easier to understand, right? So I think. Finance will go, you know, will 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 be in that area as well. Yeah, I, I agree. It seems to be there's this trade-off where the machine may tell you that sunspots predict, you know, the S P five hundred returns, but and, and maybe that is the case for some weird dynamic relationship. But yeah, it, it's a challenge because what's the economic foundation or story? 
that helps us disentangle that with you know just data mining and, it, and obviously machine learning has a lot of you know thinking behind that because that's the whole point of trying to avoid data mining but certainly um, certainly an interesting thing so so you know wrapping up here we got a few more minutes uh, and I actually want to go back to this uh, question about someone just starting in their career I mean you've highlighted all these changes all you know the industries you know fees are coming down it's not about stock picking as much as it once was you know someone young you know we're here on Penn's campus uh, you know all these people that are going to industry what what, what do you think this the skills that'll be most important going forward and and where should young people focus if they want to basically end up in your position someday um i think the important thing is the ability to learn because the things will change. And, you know, I didn't know about machine learning from college. You know, I learned computer science, but, you know, I knew very little about machine learning. But I think uh, if you have the ability to learn, then you are able to learn better. And I think that's important. And the second thing is, I think, um, I wish I had more, uh, had spent more time reading about literature and economic history and these things. Because I, I found that for people who work in quant, um, they don't appreciate as much of how the human society, you know, behaves mm-hmm. through these, uh, you know, the, these ideas embedded in, in literature and economic history. So that I think, you know, when you're young, you have all the time in the world, try to read as much books as you like and learn about the history, you know, the 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 skills, you know, as much as possible. I, I think uh, don't give up learning uh, that would be you know my advice yeah i mean I, i'm in line with you on that i think you know well especially both of us were uh, at some level you know went to university of chicago where you know dick Thaler always calls university of chicago they say humans are econs these like <laughs> little robots that perfectly rationalize and they see the mcdonald's hamburger and they're like oh i'm not gonna eat that because i'm gonna get a heart attack with an extra one percent probability in 50 years like there, there's these things called humans yeah. in the real yeah. economy, yeah. and and we just get warped through the you know by focusing so much in that field, we we sometimes forget about you know the humans out there. Um, so, anyways, we're gonna wrap it up. Uh, Lee Chen, Jack, thank you very much for coming in today. Uh, also, like thank producer Patty Hall and sound engineer Daniel Bruno. Appreciate your time. Excellent. It's very rare you get three PhDs in a room, and maybe we were understandable. It's Who finance. Knows? And it is finance, Josh Brown. It's not finance. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.